All right, guys. Welcome to the Friday Roundup. You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. Alright guys, you've officially made it to Friday. Spring is here. You've run out of excuses not to exercise, but I'm sure you'll still think of something. But in the meantime, let's go ahead and walk through today's podcast. We're going to be taking a hard look at capital gains, losses, and how you can implement it as you supercharge your path to FI. Welcome to the show. Hey Brad, how you doing today, buddy? Hey Jonathan, I'm doing great. Doing great. We got a beautiful day here in Richmond. I uh, just spent the weekend actually up in Washington, D.C. with my family, which is cool. We got to use our travel rewards points to stay in this really, really nice Hyatt Hotel. I was the Hyatt Place National Mall, and it was only like 12,000 points a night uh, for like a $300 plus hotel room. So that was, uh, you know, three cents per point, which, uh, we well always done. talk about uh, trying to maximize that. So yeah, it was a, it was fun, really great trip and yeah, just back to uh, real life now. Yeah. I wonder in our audience, um, I know we've got some high level travel rewards people in our audience, but we also got a lot of newbies, but as, as you guys, uh, start to really try some of these, send us your stories of what you've pulled out, do the math on, uh, on your redemption and, and what sort of return you got. You know, we really like hearing these stories and also sharing them with other people. Uh, I think it's just, it's just a lot of fun. Brad and I treat this travel rewards thing as a game and it is fun because you get to move stuff that you are paying with post-tax dollars and probably was adding stress to your life. And you get to move it to this essentially tax-free, you know, game that we can all play and then just share with each other and learn from it. So I know that Jeremy from the episode earlier this week, probably had the best redemption that either of us has, has ever heard of, but Brad, you just, you did it at three, three points. And I mean, that was pretty solid too. And I mean, yeah, it, it was just it's, fun, it's very right? cute. It's cute compared to <laughs> nice try. To nice try. Yeah. 20 cents per point. <laughs> but that said, we were very happy with it because you know, the two nights stay would have cost us well over $700 and we got it for 24,000 chase Ultima rewards points. So yeah, I was very, very, very pleased with that redemption. Certainly, like I said, kind of pales in comparison to, to his amazing business class redemption, but we all do what we can. Right. And, uh, well, have you ever done a business? Uh, did you ever, have you ever redeemed yourself for a business class? You know, I haven't, which is kind of embarrassing basically that, you know, I'm this, uh, well, no, I'm with you. Like I'm super stingy with my points and I want to extract every little drop from, but it didn't hold him back. Did it? No, it sure did not. And yeah, I'm with you. It's with me. We have a family of four and we're trying to travel one or two family vacations for free or close to free every year with points. And in order to do that, we need to maximize those points as best we can. And it just doesn't make sense for us to do the business or first class redemptions. I don't certainly don't begrudge anyone who makes that that choice because, man, it would be awesome. But, yeah, we just we just haven't as of yet. And I'm thinking I want to do I want to start thinking because my child is going to be born here, guys, it's probably coming within the next week. So this is, this is a reality for me, but I'm thinking, I'm already thinking about that first trip to Disney world. So I was thinking, Brad, we should really uh, sit down and go through how to do the Disney world trip and take either a full Monday. If you think it's a full Monday episode, or maybe we can do it on a, on a Friday roundup, but just go through exactly what cards to open, what the order looks like, how long it takes you to put it together, and then how you were able to organize that for not just you and your wife, but you did it for your in-laws and your parents, right? Yeah. Yeah. All eight of us went and yeah, it was you know really great trip and just one of those things, memory maker, you know, not to be sappy, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was just really cool. We all saved a whole boatload of money and got to do this trip together when in all likelihood it might not have happened or it certainly wouldn't have happened in that capacity. So yeah, I mean, that was really, really cool. And we'll set that up. Maybe guys, just keep it on your radar. Brad and I like think these ideas out and we try to create a short list of what's coming up. We'll try to go through that with y'all within the next two months. So just keep posted for that, but I'll, I'll make sure that we follow up and do this for y'all. Cause I think it is so valuable. I think 
almost everyone that's listening to this. And really, I don't care if you're in the United States or whether or not you're listening to us from Ireland. <laughs> I mean, you're probably at some point, the thought process was you may go to Disney World. I mean, it's just, it is a, it is a global phenomenon. So, and it's a very expensive one, but if we could show you how to get there for free, it might be something that more of y'all can take advantage of. And how cool would that be? Yeah. And I did want to mention, because Jonathan alluded to it, uh, his wife's due date is literally in a, a eight days from when this publishes. So we are going to try our best to keep up our publishing schedule here of twice a week, but it just might not be realistic. So bear with us if the Friday roundups don't come out for a couple of weeks, you know, Jonathan spending time with his his wife and his new son. So obviously please uh, cut him some slack here. He's working like crazy on, on this podcast and the site. And, uh, you know, obviously the last thing I certainly want him thinking about is this podcast while he's spending time with his, with his newborn. So yeah, you know, again, congrats in advance. And uh, just, I, I did want to mention that to the audience. Yeah. Life-changing events are in my very near future, but uh, yeah, I appreciate that. Okay, so let's get right into it. Uh, We want to do what we always do and really go through the episode that we had this past Monday with Go Curry Cracker and just go through some of the concepts that he really laid out for us. And I think the story that we told on Monday that, that Jeremy laid out for us, for me, it finally sank in. Now, I read, I do a lot of reading, and I have read his articles, but capital gains and losses were something that always felt slightly out of reach for me. I really couldn't take hold of it and figure out how to use it in my own life, but I figured it out this past week with that episode. That did it for me. And now I have a plan for how I'm going to use that. I mean, that's a tool that honestly, a lot of you that are in the FI community and are actually probably fairly advanced in the FI community have probably avoided, frankly, I think it's one of those that feels a little bit too complex. So you probably more or less just stick with the 401k, maybe funding the Roth. I mean, you just do some of the similar, the the very simple techniques that are easier to grab. The Roth conversion ladder that we just talked about, capital gains and tax loss harvesting are advanced stuff, but they're doable. And I don't think they have to be as complex as, as you think. And so this last Monday, we, we really went through it. And I think we told you how it would work. And then today, what we're going to try to do is maybe go in even more detail. But Brad and I wanted to real quickly let you all know that there is a tool that almost everybody in the FI community, especially the ones that blog about it, use. And Brad and I have, have used it for literally the last five years. And that is personal capital. And personal capital is a wealth and expense tracker. Uh, You can sync it up with your Vanguard, Fidelity, Schwab, uh, your 401k accounts. Even if they're with your employer, usually there's a way to connect that. And you can have all of your different accounts in one place. And this is incredibly valuable for you as you create this framework, as you're tracking your finances, as you're tracking the growth of of your passive income and your investments, and you're coming up with a plan on how you're going to get it out. You need to be able to track it. Now, we're not talking about day trading. We're not talking about seeing it so you know when to sell, when to buy. We highly recommend that you automate those and you ignore that, all that noise. And we'll talk more about that with the Jim Collins episode that's coming out. But it is important to track your net worth, to track your investment income. And we highly recommend personal capital for that. So uh, we've set up a link for y'all. If you have not, somehow you've not heard of that and you want to get access to that, go to choosefi.com slash PC. That's P as in Paul, C as in cat. And it will take you directly to our link so that you can download that and start using that today. Take 15 minutes, set it up with all your accounts. You can put it on your iPad, your phone, whatever you want, your computer, and you can have access to all your accounts in one place. And it's incredibly useful. So just keep that in mind. And if you want to use it, go to choosefi.com slash PC. And the best part is it is 100% free. We use it. We recommend it. End of story. Go check it out. Choosefi.com slash PC. All right, Jonathan. So let's uh, let's talk about the episode that we released on Monday with Jeremy from Go Card Cracker. All right. So I have a, a ton of takeaways. I always, when I listen to our episodes, I probably listen to them three to five times every single week. I I just take notes. I've got a ton of little things here, you know, aside from the tax gain harvesting and the tax loss harvesting, which which is crucial. I always like to look at the little things, the little decisions and some unconventional choices, which I know I, I mentioned a few times in the episode, but just something really simple, like how Jeremy and Winnie go to the farmer's market at the end of the day and are able to haggle 
and save a couple extra bucks and get a whole bunch more produce and food. It's, again, it's a tiny little thing. And those couple bucks or even $10, $20 that they saved every time they went is not really going to move the needle all that much in the grand scheme of things. But it's just such a perfect illustration of how we live our lives just slightly differently. And another one was when I talked about how we took our trip to Disney World when my daughter Molly was just going to turn three. Because if we went 10 days later, it would have cost us an extra 400 bucks. And they went on their business class trip when his son was under two and could still be a lap child. And it's just, it's taking just a little closer look at life and just knowing what the rules are, maximizing them and just thinking a little bit differently than the next guy. We're not doing anything crazy. Taking a three-year-old to Disney World is not revolutionary in and of itself, but just looking at that rule a little bit more closely, again, just saved us 400 bucks. That's a neat little hack just for being a little bit different. Yeah. And I think really the way that Jeremy lives his, his life, the life that he's chosen, that he's created, yeah, he can do anything he wants at this point. I mean, him and Justin from uh, Root of Good, you know, they, they are kind of these billionaires of yesteryear where they're not time is theirs. It's a tool that they can use. They can do whatever they want with it. They control it and they get to make choices. And what's interesting about the people in our community is once they make it to Phi, the choices they actually make when they have unlimited time and essentially at this point, unlimited money, they're not blowing through it. it it's not like they come to the end of this game and then now they are it's total, they're total hypocrites with everything they did to get there. They're still essentially living the same life, except they're placing all of their time into those things that we talk about, their family, their children, their, their interests and their passions. And so Jeremy's favorite thing to do is, is just to go spend time with Winnie and go down to these farmer markets and look for deals on bread and vegetables. Does he need to, like you said, does he really need to save 30 cents on that? No, but that is that is something that's a that's a process. That's him spending more time with his spouse. That's a relationship building tool, and that's something an activity that they get to do together, which to, which is totally consistent with the life they live to get there. And I think that that's just beautiful. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. And you know this life that he's built. I think you know I, I want to just talk about some quick hit things that that really stuck out to me. You know when his mom basically when he left his job and his mom asked him, you know basically, son, do you have an emergency fund? And he he said he had a 60 year emergency <laughs> fund. You know, how freaking amazing is that? I mean, I can't even imagine the look on her face. And they already started a Roth IRA for their son. And just again, knowing the rules, even though he's two years old, they opened a Roth IRA for him because he had earned income. And that earned earned income, of course, was through, you know, modeling for for the blog and and Winnie's book. But I mean, how cool is that, right? They paid him, they had contracts, you know, legitimate stuff, paid him a couple hundred bucks and dumped it all into a Roth IRA. Like that is just, it's again, it's it's thinking differently. It's these little things that are going to set you up for success down the road. And, you know, just quick hit going down my, my list here is he talked about that moment when he walked out of his job, right, which was just so powerful to me, which was, you know, it's it's what Jim Collins talks about with with his FU money concept, which is you have been saving and taking the power back in your life. And he walked in there and I guess he had some kind of personality conflict or some kind of issue. And instead of saying, oh, yes, I'm going to do X, Y and Z to fix this. He just said, all right, I think it's time to pack it up. I'm out of here. Yeah. Right. I mean, how powerful is that? And obviously that doesn't mean that compromise isn't good in life. We're not talking about that kind of stuff. It's just in this exact instance, what he, he was getting from his job, it just wasn't worth making these changes. And he was already at his fine number. And that was that. That's just really, really cool to me. And again, also about his job, like he was talking about the confidence level that he had at work was, you know, before predating that was just dramatically increased because of this power that he had in life, that he wasn't beholden every second of every day to this job and fearful that some elusive they were going to fire him, right? Because he did something wrong or didn't file the TPS report correctly or some, <laughs> some garbage like that, right? I see what you just did there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? And, and wasn't that the exact perfect, I, you know, you and I were sitting there when he was talking yeah. about it and I wrote down on the computer, office space, question mark, yeah, question mark. Yeah. Like it reminded me of that meeting when, when you know, in the, in the movie Office Space and it just reminded me of that scene when Peter was sitting there in the meeting with the Bobs and he was just, you know, so disconnected from work and, you know, their thought was, 
was, wow, this guy's a go-getter. We should promote him, you know? <laughs> That's and, exactly right. Right? How perfect was that? It was amazing. And like, and Jeremy lived that in real life. Like, I mean, that was just, just such a cool thing. So yeah, I definitely got a, got a kick out of that. Um, All those you know, office space quotes were coming back to me, including the boss saying, yeah, I'm going to need you to go ahead and come in on Sunday too. No. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good movie, man. I haven't seen that in, in a long it's time. It's going to go but... back on the short queue now. I'd forgotten about it. I, I'm definitely going to go check that one out. But no, it is. It is powerful. And I am an employer and an employee, as many people will be during their working career. And what a strange feeling that would be to have an employee that doesn't need you, doesn't need your income. Uh, it's just that would be such a strange dynamic. It would totally shift the power structure. And then on the flip side of that, for me, how powerful would that be for me as an employee to be evaluating my job both ways? Both do I enjoy doing this? Am I doing this because I love doing this? Do I need this in order to, to feed my family? Is my boss being supportive of me? Am I? Do I have a job that appreciates what I'm bringing to the table? That entire dynamic changes when you have FU money or when you're at FI. And I mean, almost everybody listening to this that has a job should be able to visualize what the two sides of that coin would look like and how quickly that dynamic would shift if they no longer needed the income. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm going to tell a story, actually, that I've never told anyone other than my wife, literally. And something similar happened to me when I left my job to work full time on my websites. And it sounds so petty, honestly, years later, or not petty, but just minuscule. But it was just like the straw that broke the camel's back. And I'd been thinking about leaving my job for for a while. You know, I had these websites that were growing and in all honesty, making some money, but not a huge amount, certainly not enough to replace my income by any means. But I had this feeling that they could be something if I spent the time on it. And I just didn't have the guts, honestly, to make that move. And I wasn't at Phi like Jeremy was. So, you know, it wasn't as clear cut of a decision for me. But it, it was one of these just ridiculous like office dynamic moves that the boss in his uh, and I hate that phrase, but the boss in his infinite wisdom decided to just unilaterally change the, the work hours. It was all of a sudden we had to come in at eight o'clock instead of eight thirty. And it just ticked me off to no end. It was like that absolute garbage FaceTime nonsense. That is everything I hate about corporate America, that it's not the value of your work. It's not how efficient you work. It's just literally the number of hours that you're chained to that desk. And it was just such like a ridiculous power play that it, like you can hear it in my voice. It pisses me off yeah, to this yeah, day. Yeah. No, awesome. And honestly, that was it. Within, I think, a couple of days, I basically said to Laura, I can't do this anymore. I'm out and walked in put in my notice and got the heck out of there. And that was a combination of a having a, a you know growing business that I could really sink my heart and soul into and and being well down the path to phi, albeit not at phi. And but the conjunction of those two things just gave me that power to say, you know what? Every other sucker has to deal with this. I don't. Wow. And yeah, that was That is uh, so powerful. You had to yeah. you, did you do it and then freak out about your decision at all? Those optics are there's such contrast there. Yeah, yeah, it was uh it was a very interesting time. And in all honesty, looking back on it, I'm not sure how I had the guts to leave a very safe job, but man, it was the best thing that I ever did in my entire life. <laughs> So, okay, uh, very cool. Yeah, very cool. <laughs> well, this is not the quit your job show necessarily, no, but no, no. certainly this is the show where we try to move the power to your side of the equation. So you make the choice because you hold the cards. Uh, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to move the power to your side of the equation and then you can make the choice. Now, there are some people that are going to work for 40 years and there is nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And there are other people that are going to work for 10 and be done. And there's nothing wrong with that. But wouldn't it be cool if everybody listening to this got to choose based on what they loved, which one they wanted to do and how many people yeah. are forced to do the 60 year career and they work from the day they graduate high school or college or get out of their parents' house all the way up until they got nothing left in there in the assisted living facility because they just can't do it anymore. Yeah. And that's what it's all about is choosing Phi and choosing what you want to do in life. You know, like Jonathan said, we are not here to say, quit your job, leave corporate America, start your own business, be an entrepreneur. I mean, that's fine for some people, but honestly, it's extraordinarily difficult and very, very stressful. So by no means is that like the panacea for everything that ails you in life. So 
not arguing that in and of itself, but we're arguing taking the power back. And the simplest way to do that is to control your finances and control your financial future. So I think enough said on on that topic, but that's a crucial point for you guys to remember out there. All right. So the last thing that I wanted to mention about the episode, which I think is just really crucial, and I know I've mentioned it a few times, is, is about investing philosophy. When we asked him what his favorite blog, it was J.L. Collins. And the reason wasn't because he loved the stock series and that was the most essential thing he had ever read, though he did indicate that it was important. But what he liked most about what Jim had to say was Jim's philosophy on investing and how Jeremy said he doesn't even look at the stock market. And this is a guy who has a good bit of money invested, obviously. And the way that he chooses to invest is to put it into those two Vanguard index funds and just let it roll because nothing good happens when you look at the stock market, honestly, like only as we've talked about with Brandon from the Mad Scientist, as I've repeated a few times, like when you let your brain get involved in investing, it is almost invariably going to screw it up. You need to just have belief in the math and have belief in what we've talked about and what these experts who we've had on have have conveyed that the best way to amass wealth over the long term is to invest in these low-cost mutual funds. And sure, your money, it, there are going to be market corrections. There are even going to be market crashes in the next 40, 50 years. That, that's a guarantee. If you can't deal with that psychologically, you're going to have a very difficult time investing and growing wealth in the long term because you need to stay the course. You cannot time the market. You just can't. If you do, you're going to screw it up. I guarantee you that. So uh, that was my last you know, quick hit from the episode that the investing philosophy is just so crucial. Yeah, that's good. My last takeaway was just for him, that financial freedom clock started once he got to broke. And you're in one of two different places, one maybe one of three different places. You know, you are either just discovering this for the first time and you are buried in debt or you have 20, 30, 40, 120,000 in debt. You know, you got to claw your way out. And for him, it took him six years to pay down 40,000 back in the 90s. Um, and he didn't take vacation. He worked overtime. I mean, everything was committed to that. But once you get to zero, being broke is a blessing. Being broke is starting from scratch. Being broke, that your financial freedom clock starts from there. And from there, it took him 10 years. It was a 10-year journey. And so depending on you know where you are when you're hearing this, I love the idea that broke is a great place to start from as opposed to six figures in debt. So just think about that. I thought that was a great way of looking at it. You can do this. We're sharing all the tools that have been compiled by other people, not by us. These are not Brad and Jonathan ideas. We're reframing these for you guys in a way that makes sense to me. I think it makes sense to Brad. We've been able to talk these ideas out, see where the the weaknesses are, see where it could be maybe just simplified, maybe put into practical examples. That's what we're doing. And so the next thing we're going to do, and we're going to try to do this a little bit more consistently, is showing you how another middle-class couple could use the tools that we talked about earlier to supercharge their path to five. So uh, this next segment that we're going to hop into is our case study of the day. And I'm excited about it. You ready for this, Brad? I am. Let's do it. Okay. So let me set the stage here. So today we're going to be looking at a couple and so married, one child, and they make 120000 So it doesn't really matter whether or not it's just one single person making 120000 or it's one person makes fifty and the other person makes seventy. At the end of the day, the IRS really doesn't care. But they're married. They have one child. Uh, they're both 30 years old and they both have enough money to max out their 401ks. So they are going to put 36000 into their 401ks. That's going to go in pre-tax. That's going to leave them with 84000 to work with after they've fully funded their 401ks. From there, I calculated it out and it looks like with the child included, so a married couple with a child included, they're going to owe about $8,000 in federal tax. For the sake of simplicity, we're ignoring state tax, which is going to leave them with $76,000 of net income. And then from there, they are living this entry-level middle-class lifestyle that we've talked about. 
and they have $40,000 of living expenses. And to our audience, you know, y'all can play around with these margins. Nothing in here is fixed. The idea with these case studies is that you take the little bit that applies to your life and you figure out how to use these actual tools. So nothing is locked in stone, but just this is the, the math that we're working through today. So based on that math, assuming that they decide to live this entry level middle class lifestyle and they commit to only spending somewhere between forty and fifty thousand dollars, they're gonna have somewhere around twenty-nine thousand to thirty-five thousand dollars in after tax income that they can invest in taxable accounts. We're gonna say, just assume for today that they are going to have twenty-nine thousand dollars to invest in investable taxable accounts. That's the, that's what we're gonna go with. Now, this couple would be eligible to put it in either a Roth IRA or into a taxable account. We're going to focus on the taxable accounts today because we want to illustrate the point and the power of capital gains. So, and that there's a huge debate on whether or not to to take advantage of Roth IRAs or whether or not just to skip them altogether. And Jeremy at Go Curry Cracker is one of the instigators of this debate. And I think there's probably room to have that discussion for sh- for sure. I think it's very, very interesting. But today we're going to talk about just taxable accounts. So the Sorry. reason why capital gains harvesting are so interesting is that they are taxed differently. Depending on the marginal tax bracket that you fall on, especially in the United States, we tax W-2 income or your paycheck one way and we tax long-term capital gains a different way. And so as long as you fall within the 15% marginal tax bracket, the federal government chooses not to tax your capital gains. Up to this point, Brad, have I said that all fairly concisely and accurately? Yeah. No, that's accurate. And and yeah, uh, Jeremy added that qualified dividends. So it's qualified dividends and long-term capital gains are taxed at a 0% rate if you are in the 10 or 15% marginal bracket for your normal federal income tax, which... Uh, just looking at the tax table from 2016, it looks like the uh, 15% bracket goes all the way up to 75,300 for a couple that's filing married filing joint. So that's a that's a significant amount, and that's the taxable income. So that's already reduced by their standard deduction, or if they itemize even better, and the personal exemption. So for this family that you mentioned. Uh, they have about $24,000 additional uh, deductions just from the personal personal exemptions and the standard deduction. So I guess theoretically they can make somewhere in the vicinity of $99,000 that would then be reduced again to get them down below that 75.3. So I keep going, uh, setting the stage here, but yeah, that that's uh, important info to add. Okay. So to put that into context, basically what we're saying is if all of your income were to come from capital gains, because you don't work and you are a millionaire and a billionaire, and you're just drawing that out on an as needed basis, you could draw up to almost a hundred thousand dollars a year in capital gains and, and live off that. And you would pay zero dollars in, in taxes because the federal government has decided not to tax uh, long-term capital gains. That, that's, the, that's the key. That's how you never pay taxes. Now, the other half of that is if you were to ha- make $100,000 a year of W-2 income, you would have to pay a 15% tax on that, essentially. Jonathan, can I jump in? No, please, please. It, just, just to clarify real quick. So it wouldn't be 15000 exactly, because just the way our graduated income tax tables work is the first 18000 and change, 18500 is taxed at uh, 10%. According to the the table that I'm looking at, I, and then anything over that eighteen thousand five fifty is taxed at fifteen percent. I think that's important. You know, most people don't really understand how our income tax works at all. They think, oh, I'm in the twenty eight percent bracket, so that means that every single dollar I make is taxed at that that rate, and that is just completely inaccurate. You know, for instance, if you make one dollar over the bracket, it's not like all of your prior dollars are taxed at that highest rate. It's just that one last dollar. That's the concept of the marginal dollar, the next dollar. So that's really important for people, you know, outside of this case study, just, you know, put that aside. Most people just don't understand how our tax system works. So I, I think that's really, really important that everybody understands there are these tax brackets and it's the first X number of dollars are taxed at 10%. The next Y number of dollars are taxed at 15 and et cetera, et cetera. So as you make more money, every marginal dollar is taxed. Depending on these brackets, they're taxed at a different rate. So hopefully that makes sense. 
Yeah. Awesome. I am so glad that you stopped me and interjected with that. That is a huge point that I was about to breeze right by. So thanks for slowing me down on that. All right. Now, so we've we've gotten through some of the basics here. We needed to get through all that information so that we could then take a look at how this couple would actually use these tools that we talked about. So here's the play. And here are the assumptions. We talked, this couple's going to max out their 401k. And then after their living expenses, they're going to have $29,000 left over for investment. They're going to put that into a taxable Vanguard account. We're going to assume that they make an 8% rate of return on this and that they're going to invest uh, from the ages of 30 to 40. So it's a 10-year, essentially a 10-year timeline that we're looking at for this couple. So if they invest 36000 in their 401k at 8% for 10 years, uh, that will come out to about $563,000. That'll be in their 401k. So that's all pre-tax. And then the, the remainder, the 29000 we talked about, they're going to be investing that into a taxable Vanguard VTSAX at 8% uh, for 10 years. And that should that would come out, assuming an 8% rate of return, at about $453,000. Now that we've, we've, we've set the stage here, we want to take a look at what channeling these advanced FI techniques would look like for this specific couple. Are you ready for this, Brad? Yeah, let's do it. I, I do want to just mention that, you know, we're, we're obviously, this is very general. So, you know, we have a lot of really brilliant people out there in the audience, you know, just keep in mind, we're trying to explain this on, on a podcast. It's difficult to do, you know, we're, we're making some big assumptions and we're not including, like Jonathan said, state taxes. We're not even including payroll taxes in here, you know? So, I mean, there are, there are things that, that kind of move the needle here, but so just bear with us. I think it's, it's an important illustration for everybody out there. And, you know, also like Jonathan mentioned, these people have uh, $40,000 a year in in expenses, which, you know, using the 25 times rule, you know, the 4% safe withdrawal rate, they would need to have about a million dollars to be at, at FI. And that's almost exactly what Jonathan calculated when you add up the 563K in the 401k accounts and the 453,000 in the taxable accounts. That's just a shade bit over a million bucks. So that's a decision. They did this in 10 years. Some people might not feel safe just retiring right at that exactly 25 times. You know, I'm a little more conservative with my money than most people. So for me, I'd probably work an extra year or so just to pad it a little, little bit. But under the definition of FI that most people consider, this couple is at FI. They have 25 times their annual expenses and they are ready to rock and roll. So that's the decision they made. So yeah, I just wanted to uh, to mention that real quick. So Brad, what we really want to do is take a look at what the play is for this for this individual. How should they go about using capital gains harvesting to their advantage while using it right alongside the Roth conversion ladder? Yeah, so I think I think the play here, as as we discussed on the Mad Scientist episode and on last week's Friday Roundup, is you know they want to maximize the Roth IRA conversion ladder as much as possible. So we have determined that, especially for this couple, I think when with the Millionaire Educator episode, we talked about free money, and you have about thirty-four thousand dollars for a, a married couple with one child in free money to do this conversion. So what that means is with the personal exemptions, the standard deduction and the $1,000 child tax credit, which if you kind of back that out and turned it into deductions essentially, means you get $34,000 where you would pay $0 in tax on it, okay? So we are gonna assume that they are going to convert $34,000 a year from their 401k which once this couple left their job, they would have to roll that out of the 401k at their old company, put it into an IRA with Vanguard or Schwab or Fidelity, and then they can do this conversion every single year. You know, we would advocate 34,000 as the number there because, you know, we want them to pay $0 in tax. That's the goal here, especially considering they have so much money in their taxable accounts, which is just savings, as we've discussed. That 453 could just be sitting there in cash. You know, it's not, as we're going to discuss, it's in Vanguard, and that's where the capital gain harvesting comes in. But they do have a sizable amount of taxable savings that they can use to live off of. So even though their expenses are 40000 a year, we're going to do the 34K in conversion every year. So what we need to get them to year five, which again, if you've listened to prior episodes, the Roth IRA conversion, you can convert that money, but you cannot pull it out tax and penalty free until a five-year seasoning period passes. 
So on day zero, you can make that conversion, but then you have to wait five years to pull that amount out. Okay. And then you get it because it's a Roth IRA, essentially contribution at that point. That's what it's considered. You can pull it out tax and penalty free. All right. So that's the whole concept of the Roth IRA conversion ladder that you're doing that every single year. So six years, hence, you pull out the 34,000 you put in on year one, seven years down the road, you pull out what you put in in year two, et cetera, et cetera. So you just keep doing that. Uh, And that's to get your, essentially your 401k out entirely tax and penalty free and well before you're 59 and a half, which is when you normally can can access that penalty free. Uh, so Jonathan, did that make sense as, as a, a lead in? Anything you want to clarify? No, that was perfect. Yep. That's exactly what we're going to do with the 401k. Cool. So, so that's the play there. You know, obviously they need to get to year five and luckily they have $453,000 in their taxable accounts that they can pull out $40,000 each year to live off of. Okay, so that's what gets them, bridges them to that point that they get to to access the 401k money. All right, so that's crucial as well. Now, the cool thing is because as Jeremy pointed out to us with the tax gain harvesting, they still have a lot of space left over to harvest all these gains and pay zero dollars in taxes on them. So as Jonathan mentioned, they're putting in, they put in $29,000 a year So they put in $290,000 over the 10-year period in actual, you know, after-tax savings, but they grew to $453,000, okay? So they have $163,000 in unrealized gains that when they sell those mutual funds, they need to pay tax on that, or they would if they were a normal person, right? Not not at (laughs) FI and not knowing all these advanced strategies that we know. But that's, so that's the cool thing is they can actually go after the, the mutual funds that have the, the largest unrealized gains and sell those because they still have all this space. You know, as we discussed, they have up to almost a hundred thousand dollars in total gross taxable income, if you will, before deductions. And they've only, had 34,000 in a taxable event for the conversion, because as we, as we know, that is a taxable event. So that counts as taxable income. So that leaves them over $60,000 of potential tax gain harvesting just every single year, which is amazing. You know, they only have 163,000 of unrealized gains anyway. So they can get all of that gain out without ever paying tax on it either. So there's a lot lot to do here. And essentially, these guys are are never going to pay tax on any of this money, which is incredible to me. So there's two points that we need to add to this in order to round this picture out. One is, this is why you see some controversy on the Go Curry Cracker website talking about why he does not fund a Roth IRA and puts all of his focus into taxable accounts. That seems counterintuitive at first glance because with a Roth IRA, everybody knows that you don't have to pay taxes on the gains or the earnings. But it totally makes sense when you take this episode into context and you realize that based on the tools that we've just laid out for you, capital gains harvesting, you're going to be able to not only never pay taxes on these taxable investments, but you're going to be able to then get access to those dividends and on those gains anytime you want. Whereas with the, with the Roth, if you'd done it that way, those would have been captured up until you're 59 and a half on all the gains. Uh, so a lot more flexibility. This couple has access to this in their 40s as opposed to in their 60s, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that's a very good point. So keep that in mind. That The, the second point is it's that $100,000 line, that imaginary line right there. They're using the 34,000 is being taken up by the conversion And the difference, that's how much window they have to realize these gains anytime they want. So like Brad said, so if they have, Brad, what was the number you said? They have $163,000 of unrealized gains when they go to sell those investment accounts. Is that the number that you came up with? Yeah, that's, yeah, just back of the envelope. Back of the envelope. So, you know, they could essentially convert 60,000 a year for three years and now all, and just within a three-year window, all those gains have been realized and they won't pay a dime in tax on it, which gives them a lot of flexibility and a lot of choices going down the road. The key for the capital gains harvesting was that because they're just trying to take advantage of this bracket that the federal government has created for them, they're essentially just selling the Vanguard stocks or the Vanguard funds that have done really well, then they're not paying taxes on it. They're saying, hey, federal government, you can tax me. You can tax me because I made money on this. And the federal government says, no, thanks. We don't want to. 
And so now they've realized it at that higher number, and then they're just rebuying it again. So I know some of you probably have questions about wash sales. And for the sake of capital gains and capital gains harvesting, it doesn't matter. You can essentially sell your VTSAX and then you can go right back in and buy your VTSAX. So if you didn't need that money, you could literally just put it right back in to Vanguard. Not a problem. All right. Yeah, that's uh, that's really powerful stuff. And and hopefully this illustration made some sense. Obviously, uh, anybody has any feedback or any information, it's conceivable that we got a detail or two wrong, but because this is very complex, but this is our understanding of, of how this situation works. And, uh, you know, what's cool is we can always get Jeremy back on and we can talk through a another example. So if you've got something for your life, you know, send it our way. As always, you can reach us at feedback at choosefi.com. All right, guys. So Brad, always uh, after we do one of these case studies, we always like to go ahead and go through a couple of the iTunes reviews. And we had several come through this weekend. Again, we really appreciate it. it. It helps us get our message out there. It helps us make this a more mainstream idea. It helps us get access to you know new guests. So thank you for taking the time to leave a review. And these are just a couple that came through this week. Uh, Jacob says, great show, super cheesy intro. Be ready to skip 30 seconds. Love these guys. Real specific advice you can implement. Jacob, man, come on, embrace the funk. It builds character, man. But, uh, (laughs) yeah, Brad and I, we both know that it is a, it is a, I guess a campy intro. It's definitely a funky intro, but, uh, we love it and, uh, we're enjoying doing this. And then someone else said, uh, good show, learn a synonym for unpack it and I'll listen more. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I got a lot of flack for that this week. It's kind of like a, it's a virus, you know, it's for life. It's hard to escape it uh, once you embrace it. So beware, but I am trying to detangle it from my vocabulary. And I think I had a, I had a 0% unpack ratio today. So I think I've done a good job so far, but it's been very, very difficult. Very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We're at a zero times saying unpack so far. And it's funny. I, I have never used that phrase in my entire life, but Jonathan has used it. And and for some reason, like when I'm doing these podcasts, like that just flows naturally, but we both listen to the episodes and we realized like, holy cow, we're saying that word a ton of times. So yeah, you know, as something as silly as this is, like guys, we listen to it and we also listen to your feedback. So something as even as minuscule as that, we are definitely gonna gonna lose that word from our vocabulary. So do not worry. All right, and then uh, LexGuy21 says, Brad and Jonathan are an amazing team. I have been marathoning this podcast for the past two weeks and I finally finished today. There is undoubtedly an avalanche of details and specifics in their episodes and they deconstruct topics wonderfully. And then Lucy 1990 says, thank you for creating this. I've been listening for a while while I'm out walking. I really like that you're talking details. It's helpful to hear the nuts and bolts of how to approach Phi. I enjoy other podcasts on the subject. They're inspiring, but often thin on the steps to take. As someone who tinkers with spreadsheets and experiments with different things, I appreciate and look forward to hearing more about your experiences. So guys, thank you so much for leaving that feedback. Uh, Please continue to leave us those feedback on iTunes and Uh, I mean, it just, it's the number one way that you can help us get this message out right now. And we absolutely appreciate you guys. So thank you so much for that. All right, guys. So we're going to move on now to some questions from the audience. And we've actually been getting a number of these where uh, one of the spouses or significant others are, are really into this concept and the other one either isn't into it or just hasn't become aware of it yet. And the question is, how do you approach your spouse about this? How do you try to to make this a lifestyle that that you both can live without there being animosity or any kind of issues like that? And Kevin sent in this one case study where he said, hey guys, I love your podcast. I've slowly been converting my, my wife to a Phi life. She came from a formerly ultra wealthy family, $5 million house, $100,000 car, et cetera. Any advice for me? We've made some small changes like changing from leasing a Mercedes to buying a Kia, bringing lunch to work, the Costco plan you guys laid out, but it's hard to kick our $700 a month in restaurants budget. I'm starting to cook more, but Costco has nothing to offer my wife's Ruth's Ruth's Chris palate. So yeah, Kevin wants to know, you know, what would we, what would we advise him? 
And Jonathan, you want to jump in? I, I think before I send it over to you, like, you know, we don't have the perfect answer to this, but it, but I, th- I think it would be interesting to kind of talk through like how we would approach this, right? Yeah. And dude, you are screwed. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll take a stab at this, see what we can do, man. That has got to be so challenging though. Um, and I don't know completely what I would do in your situation. I have never had or even been close to having that ultra wealthy lifestyle. And I can imagine that that, that is just, that has got to be challenging. But, but having said that, you know, I will be, to be honest, I'm the spender in my family. Like I'm the one that, that wants to spend money. There's people and Brad's one of them that are, you know, minimalism for minimalism's sake, which is totally cool. You know, and I totally get it. I have a foot in that world and I, and I appreciate it and I understand that mindset. But I also, you know, if I were a, a millionaire or a billionaire, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't have a problem with spending money if I have it. My biggest gripe is that in general, most people that have bought into the consumerism and materialism uh, in this country and probably in the world, sacrifice their future for the now. And so I, it's kind of that, it's just finding that balance that gives you the best of both for me. So my perspective on this may be a little different, but this is going to be a great conversation. I'm excited to have it. Br- Brad, did you have any initial thoughts? To me, it comes down to happiness. And I don't think Kevin is screwed here at all. I know you're kind of jokingly saying that, but rich people are not different from us. Poor people are not different from us. It's just people have what they've grown up with, first off. And second, like a lot of people substitute happiness in life for buying things and buying expensive things. And like Jonathan said, I'm kind of a minimalist. I would love to own nothing. I I certainly, certainly don't want to buy expensive things because, you know, that would just freak the heck out of me, honestly. Like, you know, I'm driving around my 2003 Honda Civic, which is a perfectly lovely little car, but man, I I never worry about it. You know, like one time somebody hit me in the parking lot, like just tap my bumper and flex some of the the paint off, but, and he left a note and he was so apologetic. I'm like, dude, it's a 2003 Civic. I don't care one iota, you know, like it doesn't impact my life. And like, you know, this guy was like so stressed out and then he was thrilled afterward. You know, he was so thankful and, and I mean, if I had a Mercedes, like some other moron and spent $50,000 on it, of course I'd be worried about it. I'd be worried about it every second. Like, and you know, that's not to say there aren't expensive things to buy in life because I'm not someone who's going out and buying cheap stuff. That's not how I live my life. I'm buying stuff that I get value out of. So sometimes that might mean buying something that's more expensive than the next guy might buy. But, you know, maybe I've made a determination that I'm going to get some additional satisfaction out of that or additional years of value or something like that. So, you know, hopefully that kind of makes sense on, on how I approach spending. But but more so, just going back to what, what you know, Kevin's actual question is, what does your wife value and what does she get happiness out of? Is she, and I'm not a psychologist, I'm not playing an armchair one here, but is she actually enjoying the $700 a month in restaurants or would you guys like to cook together? Like how Winnie from Go Curry Cracker does, right? Like she said, I'm going to be the best chef in town because A, she loves it and B, it, it is less expensive, but it's also something that they can spend time together. On, as opposed to, you know, oh, let's run out and pick up some prepared food from the local food store or let's go out and get a pizza or something like it can actually be something that you enjoy as a couple. So for me, it's finding those things. It, it doesn't mean not spending money in life. It really doesn't. But it means just spending it intentionally with happiness and enjoyment at the root of every decision. So in my opinion, buying a Mercedes is not going to give me five times the value of buying or satisfaction or happiness of buying my Civic. So that's where the decision comes from for me. So I think maybe sit back and not do it in like this overly enthusiastic and ham-handed way of like, hey, what do you get happiness out of? You know, like, I mean, that's not going to, your wife is going to recoil in horror from that conversation. But like, try to find things that you guys enjoy doing that don't necessarily cost a lot of money, right? Like that would yeah. be my first step. Yeah. And I think also it's the small steps too. You're, you know, you're, you're probably, I mean, I guess you could do a radical overhaul, but I think the radical overhaul happens more when both people are on the same page. I think when you have people that are opposite ends, you're looking for common ground and you just make some small steps. And I think Brad's tip about finding the things you love and the frugal analogs and doing more of those is going to have more of an impact for you. So 
you know, I think probably look at the different line items in your budget and see which ones you can have an impact on. You've already done that a little bit, you know, by changing from the Mercedes to the Kia, you're packing the line. I mean, you're doing some really good stuff. And so it sounds to me like if you're actually, first of all, starting to track your finances, you're in better shape than you were before. Right. And now then the next play is, all right, you're saying it's hard to kick the $700 a month restaurants out of the budget. If that, you know, if that's the, if that's the biggest line item, that's the thing we're focusing on. What can we do that gives us 80% of the same enjoyment, but for a fraction of the cost? So the, the Costco is not cutting it for, her. well, I make steaks at home. I make gourmet steaks. My wife's favorite thing in the world is for me to actually go ahead and spend the time on a gourmet steak meal. Maybe you do a gourmet steak meal at home and you do the wine and and create the scene, but you do it at home and you're doing it together. There are frugal analogs for everything. It's certainly not Ruth, Chris or Chipotle. It doesn't have to be there. There's something in the middle there. And so I think you certainly just look for what gives her happiness, like Brad was saying, and try to figure out how you can do a frugal analog for that. Yeah. And just just last thought, especially if, you know, this restaurant budget is, is a significant portion of it. Maybe your wife doesn't enjoy cooking. Maybe you're you're the cook, like you mentioned, you know, I'm starting to cook more. Well, experiment, right? Ask your friends on Facebook for their favorite recipe that is a little bit different and and you know, not just like chicken Parmesan or something. If your wife is looking for an exotic dinner, well, you can make that at home. But obviously, if you're trying to get her on board with this lifestyle, like asking her to do more is not going to necessarily be the ideal scenario. So it's not, oh, honey, you know, it's time for you to cook this lavish dinner. If Kevin wants to take this over, then then make it something fun that, that you become the best chef in your city or your town, right? Like, that's a fun thing to experiment on for years. And my wife, Laura, is the cook in our family and, and she just loves it. And like we talked about on a prior episode, like we're always trying to like refine like our quote unquote, like top 50 list. You know, this is what we have, like a like a running list of of our favorite meals. And as a new meal comes in, that's fantastic. It kind of like supplants, you know, number 50 on the list. And, you know, realistically, we're never going to make that again, because as we discussed, when we cook, we always cook for leftovers. So, you know, realistically, Laura's only making one or two meals a week at the most because of how we shape our meal planning. So a top 50 list of meals is going to last almost an entire year. You know, we might not make something that we love more than once or twice a year. So you can make a game out of it, you know, make it fun and make this delicious food that your wife can enjoy. So, you know, I think you can take that, you know, that's $8,400 a year in restaurants. You don't have to cut that to zero, you know, like, my wife and I, we like going out to breweries with friends. We're not getting meals there necessarily and spending $100 when we go out. We're spending, you know, 20 bucks on a couple beers. And that's fine. You know, that's not going to add up to $8,400 a year, obviously. You know, we go out maybe once a month or thereabouts and, and go to a brewery once a month with friends. And that's a pretty cool little social life. And that's not a ton of money out of the budget. Yeah. You know, I didn't even notice this, but Kevin listed some stats at the top. And he said that between the two of them, it's 75,000 and 55,000 in terms of income, 32 and 28 years old. And then they have 40,000 in the Roth and they have no debt. So I was just thinking about that. That is actually what we did our case study on in terms of a financial picture. You got two people at the age of 30 with $120,000 joint income and they have no debt. So it's a 10 year plan for you guys. So, you know, you're just going to have to, you, you start with where you are and you see where you can move towards. But one of the things that always helps is having an idea of what the other side actually looks like. Instead of just being frugal for frugal sake, which is wonderful, having an idea of what you're working towards and what you're working towards together as a team. And your timeline, if you were to implement these things, would be pretty short. I I think that's about a 10-year timeline. So take it for what it's worth. I hope that helps. But we've had three people minimum I think we had closer to five people email this week, basically mentioning, you know, something about, you know, one spouse, whether it was the husband or the wife went both ways, one person being totally on board and then how to get the other person to come along. And what that tells me is that we've convinced you. I think, I think we have shown you enough. We've given you enough options. We have explored what this looks like to sell you on it. And now you're just trying to say, how can I get my spouse on board? And maybe y'all just listen to a few of the episodes together. Maybe you just implement a few of the things 
that we've shared with you. Like, for instance, maybe the travel rewards. Maybe you start traveling the world for free and getting those little wins under your belt, those things that you couldn't have done, even with your normal spending patterns, you couldn't have afforded that. But now you can do a trip to Europe, you know, and you can do it for free, a frugal analog. Maybe a few of those little wins are enough to convert you to the other side. So I know that in my life, it didn't, you didn't get all the way to here immediately. It was one little thing at a time. And so you just take one step and then the next one. And being the spender in my family and just from what I told you earlier, it was kind of hard for me to get to the point where I identified completely with Brad. Like everything that Brad says, I generally agree with now. Now, what will it look like far on the other side? I don't know if I'll be in the same place, but the steps that I'm willing to go through now, I, I want to do exactly what he's doing. And maybe the, the reason why I want to do it is different, but the process that I'm willing to go through is exactly the same. I am going to be a minimalist. I'm going to focus on frugality. I'm going to focus on this entry-level middle-class lifestyle, and I'm going to get to FI. After FI, what does it look like? Would I still maintain an entry-level middle-class lifestyle? Well, probably somewhere close, but you don't necessarily have to. I don't think that you have to feel that way in order to still embrace the things that we talk about. But for everybody, the entry-level middle-class lifestyle is a tool that you can use to get to five faster. So that's just kind of my own particular perspective on it. All right, guys. uh, So for this next segment, we like to take a travel rewards question and we have one from Kurt and he says, travel hacking for hotels. So he says, can you address travel hacking ideas for hotels instead of airlines? I'm in a unique spot where I already don't have to pay for flights, but I would really like to get some cheaper hotels. Brad, what are your thoughts? All right. I I like hotel redemptions as well. They're a lot easier than airline redemptions because most hotel, major hotel chains have a policy where if you, if they have one standard room available for, you know, regular cash bookings, then you can use your points. Okay, so uh, that's a really important thing to remember that it's not limited to just a couple of award seats on one random United Airlines plane or something like that. It's if the Hyatt place in Washington, D.C., which, you know, I just stayed in, if they have any of their, quote, standard rooms. So that's nothing, no deluxe, no upgraded, no nothing like that, just a standard room. If they have that available to book regular with cash you can use your points. All right. So uh, that means you can use hotel points very often up until the last minute, because, you know, most hotels are not at full occupancy every night. I mean, the vast majority of them are not. So it gives you a lot more flexibility with that. You can do last minute bookings. There's no last minute booking fees that I know of on any of the chains. So those are all just very positive little things to, to keep in mind, certainly. And you can get some pretty good value. Like I mentioned earlier, there are lots of Hyatt Hyatt hotels that I find a category one through three, which are either 5,000 points a night, 8,000 or 12,000 respectively. And you can get some pretty darn good value out of those and find some nice hotels. When we went to the San Francisco Bay area this past summer with my family, we actually stayed at the the Hyatt House in Emeryville, which is right there in, you know, Oakland, San Francisco area. And yeah, that was, I think it was 8,000 points a night when we booked it. I think it might've jumped up to 12,000, but that's still a, a really good redemption. So you can find a lot of, a lot of solid value with Hyatt and Starwood, especially. So I would, if it were me, starting from scratch, I would focus on earning as many of those points as possible. So for Hyatt there, while there is a Hyatt card, the bonus on that is actually two free nights at any Hyatt in the world. Okay. So those are not the traditional point bookings. Those are just two free nights. So now naturally you wouldn't want to use those at a hundred dollar category one Hyatt. You'd want to use them at you know, the category seven ultra luxury hotel in New York City, the Park Hyatt or the Park Hyatt in Paris or Sydney, Australia. So that's the play with those kind of cards when some of them offer two free nights. I know there's a Hilton reserve card that offers something similar. So you always want to go for luxury hotels when you get those. But as far as earning Hyatt points, the easiest way is actually through Chase Ultimate Rewards. So we've talked previously about like the Chase Sapphire Preferred, which is our number one card the uh, Chase Sapphire Reserve and the Ink Business Preferred. There are a bunch of cards, the Chase Ink Cash. There are a bunch of cards that earn these ultimate rewards points. So those 
when you have one of the the premium cards, like the the Sapphire or the Ink business card, uh, those points are transferable to 11 different airline and hotel partners, and Hyatt is one of them, actually. So you can just send those points over to Hyatt and then make the booking. So for instance, what we did when we booked two nights at this Hyatt in Washington, D.C., was we took 24,000 points from our Chase Ultimate Rewards account, and I transferred them over to my Hyatt Hotels account and just literally booked the hotels 20 seconds later. You know, I, I made sure the availability was there for those award nights that I wanted and then transferred the points because once you transfer them, you cannot send them back to Chase. Okay, so that's an important point to remember. Uh, so that was that was like a two-minute exercise. Found the hotel, found the availability, and then sent the points over from Chase, refreshed my Hyatt account, and just booked them. So like I said, a couple minutes, and then boom, that was done. Saved us $700. Nice. So. Yeah, that was that was really solid. Uh, Starwood is another one where there are lots of redemptions for what would be considered fewer points, if you will. And and I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But you can get redemptions at the lower levels for 2,000 or 3,000 points a night on these weekend nights. And even like Category 3 is only 7,000 points a night. And they offer the fifth night free on five or more night redemptions. So for like 28,000 points, you can get five nights in a category three hotel because it's only 7,000 points a night, but you only need to spend for four of them, right? So that's the 28,000 and you get the fifth night free. So there are a couple of uh, Starwood Amex cards. There's the personal and business. And also there are Marriott cards. Okay, Marriott, the redemptions are generally terrible. Uh, They usually, it's like 30 plus thousand points a night for even just like standard junkie Marriott's. Uh, So I don't generally recommend Marriott for the sake of booking Marriott hotels, but since Marriott just bought Starwood, you can actually transfer Marriott points over to Starwood now, which is really cool. So uh, because the Marriott points are worth so much less, it's actually three Marriott points gets you one Starwood. So that would be like 30,000 Marriott equals 10,000 Starwood. But just keep in mind that you can move them back and forth uh, if you find, you know, good Starwood or Marriott redemption. So, you know, that touches on on most of where I'd start. You know, there are some Hilton Hilton cards as well that you can rack up just a huge number of Hilton points. But, you know, similar to Marriott, they it, they cost a lot. It's 30 to 40,000 points a night in in many, many Hilton's. So, you know, your 100,000 points just aren't going to go that far. But, you know, as long as you're aware of that, you can still get value from those card signups. And then just final point is there are cards like the uh, Barclay Card Arrival Plus and the Capital One Venture that you can just use to book your hotels and just pay for them like normal. You know, at checkout, you just use that credit card and then you can log into your credit card account after the fact and use your miles to to wipe out that expense off your credit card bill. Okay, so uh, that's, you know, a nice way if you can find a good deal on a hotel, that's a way to get like the Barclay card arrival plus currently at a time of publication, that's a $500 bonus. So you can get $500 hotel rooms from that one card bonus. So, you know, that can go a pretty significant way as well if you can find good deals. So that would be my, my you know, five minute explanation of how to, you know, use travel rewards points for hotels. So hopefully that helped, Kurt. Wow, dude, that was awesome. Uh, this is why you're the expert. That was a very thorough explanation of everything that you should consider and all the different ways that you can approach travel rewards with hotels. Excellent, excellent stuff there, buddy. And if you uh, are just hearing about travel rewards for the first time, because maybe you've just found out about the Choose FI podcast and you want more information on exactly the tools and techniques that Brad and I and a lot of our community now actually use to travel the world for free, uh, you can go to choosefi.com slash 009 and we have a great introduction uh, to travel rewards in general and you will learn everything you need in order to get started. So hope that helps. All right, guys. So we'd like to do just a short segment about where Choose FI is going. Brad and I told you that the next couple of weeks are going to be a little bit uncertain just with, with everything that I'm going to have going on personally, but we are going to try as best we can to get y'all some additional uh, Friday roundups. This upcoming week, we have JL Collins, uh, and he is going to be showing us exactly how the stock series came together, and we're going to be exploring exactly what that looks like for you. Now, he does a wonderful job just on his blog 
actually going through the individual levers that you can pull to go through the simple path to wealth. But I had always wanted to do this almost as an audiobook companion to that because he is such a storyteller. I mean, the, the man is amazing and you're going to enjoy this. So we don't yet know how many parts the stock series is going to be, but uh, Jim has agreed to come back and do really as many as we need to in order to do it right. So this upcoming Monday will be the first part in that series on the stock series, and it's going to be fantastic. So that's that's just one thing to look forward to. We also have another episode coming up on the fa- the staples of FI, uh, specifically looking at what the entry-level middle-class lifestyle, exactly what that looks like. Uh, J.D. Roth, we are planning on getting him on the podcast in the somewhat near future. Uh, we're still trying to pin down that date as well as Christy from Millennial Revolution. So those are two other people that we're very excited about. Uh, we have one episode coming up that we want to do on the true cost of car ownership, where we really take a look at exactly the cost of your cars. And we're going to give you the formulas you need, the math you need to really take a look and figure out exactly how much your car is actually costing you. And I I think it's going to be very insightful. I think it's going to change the way that you look at cars and really help you figure out exactly what it would look like to actually win when purchasing a car. And I've always lost at that. So I'm just really bad at it. So it's incredibly useful for me. And I think it's something that you will find useful as well. Uh, And we have a few other ideas. Some people have suggested that maybe we take a look at robo advisors. It's not something that I have done a whole lot of research into. I know there's a big debate out there and and almost like a mini feud, although I think it's in good fun between Go Curry Cracker and Money Mustache about whether or not to use robo advisors. And I know Tim Ferriss is also a fan of one of them as well. So I think that'll be interesting. We're going to start doing a little bit of research before we hop into that, but that's on the radar also. So I'm kind of excited about it. I think it's going to be a fun two to three months. I think there's a lot of good information coming your way. Brad, any final thoughts? Yeah, just really excited for Monday's episode, episode 19 with Jim Collins. I mean, we're really very fortunate that he spent so much time with us. I mean, I think it's uh, an hour and a half episode and it's just really phenomenal. As as Jonathan mentioned, Jim is is a wonderful storyteller and I think you're I think you're going to enjoy the episode. Uh, so please stay tuned on Monday, just uh, a couple short days from now and check that one out for sure. And the other item is just that we always want your feedback. We always want your input. You know, I was thinking the other day, like our frugal wins and frugal fails of the week, like, you know, sure, Jonathan and I might have, you know, one or two things here and there to, to throw in, but there are thousands of you listening to this podcast and we want to hear your frugal win of the week, your frugal fail of the week. Just shoot us an email, put the subject frugal win and send it to feedback at choosefi.com and just, just send us a two line thing with what your frugal win of the week was. And, and we'll read it out on, on the podcast on Friday. And, you know, we want to make this as community driven as possible. We're not here to sit here and give our opinion for two hours and sermonize about this and that. that that's not what we're doing. We're making this what we hope to be the hub of the financial independence community online. And the only way that happens is with your feedback and your input. So please, anything that you have, just send it to us via email, feedback at choosefi.com. All right, guys, if you want to get in our email list and you want to get the latest up-to-date tax hacks, life hacks, fi hacks, frugal wins, and guest post, you can go to choosefi.com slash subscribe. If you don't have access to a computer at the moment, but you want to get on our email list by your cell phone, you can text ChooseFI to 44222. Just text ChooseFI to 44222. Thanks so much for checking in today, and we'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to ChooseFI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.